Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, everybody. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. And I actually, is one of my favorite parts of 1 Corinthians, the first, this first part, because up to this point, Paul has been dealing with a lot of issues. Let's just backtrack and think about all the issues Paul's been dealing with. Um, and when we get to 1 Corinthians, we'll look at that again. But divisions in the church, lawsuits among believers, incest in the church, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, idolatry, sexual immorality, the misuse of spiritual gifts, all these things he's addressed. Marriage, singleness. Now, towards the end, he's, he's, he's basically bringing the letter to a close in chapters 15 and 16, and he brings it all the way back to the gospel and what the gospel is all about. So verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the priority of the gospel. So let's read this together and, and, and we're just going to spend some time enjoying these passages of scripture because it really deals with what we're dealing with Holy Week here leading up to Easter. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain for I delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures that he appeared to cephas and that's just the greek word for peter so peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to james then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." In verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about the gospel. And he tells us four things about how the gospel had come to the Corinthians. Number one, he says, you had received it. So you have to receive the gospel. You have to receive the message. But then he says, not only did you receive it, but he says, you're making your stand in it. You received it in which you stand. Now, it's very important, the tense that he uses here, he uses what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense means that you, you did an action and it came to a completion in the past, but it continues to stand ongoingly into the present. Okay, so it's not just simple action. Simple action would be, I went to the store. This is a different tense. And so the way you would translate it would be, when you received the gospel, you took your stand in it, and you're continuing to take your stand in it, and you'll always continue to take your stand in it. So it's not just this easy believism where I just kind of gave head knowledge to some facts about the gospel. No, I received it and I'm taking my stand in it and I'm continuing to stand in it. And what is this gospel doing? He says, thirdly, I'm being saved by it. 
I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you took your stand, and by which you're being saved. So the gospel saves you. And then notice what he says to you at the last part here. You must hold fast to it. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, there may be some confusion there on the last part of verse 2, where Paul says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, if you hold fast, meaning some people would look at that and say, well, if you don't hold fast to the gospel, you're not really saved. So let me just ask you a question. Can true, authentic, born-again believers lose their salvation? No. But there's another question we've got to ask. It's this question. Is there such a thing as false faith or false conversions or believing in vain? Yes. So can somebody believe the facts of the gospel? Can somebody give acknowledgement that they believe in Jesus verbally, but yet still not truly be a Christian? Yes. So what I want to do is I want us to show you how important it is that Paul says you've got to receive the gospel. You've got to believe the gospel. You've got to stand in the gospel. You've got to hold fast the gospel. And it's got, to proved out, it's got to be proved out through the entirety of your life. So let's keep our finger in Matthew, but turn over to, I mean, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn over to Matthew. Matthew 7, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at two verses in Matthew where Jesus talks about this false type of faith. Uh, an unreal faith, if you will. A faith that is fake. A pretend fake. A false faith. So, and we're going to be, by the way, guys, we're going to be in Acts a lot tonight. So we're going to be all over the Bible. So just be prepared to flip in your Bible or swipe in your Bible. Or as they said at T4G, I think it was John, somebody said, if you have your Bible, open it or turn it on. (laughs) I can't remember who it was. I can't remember if it was John Piper or somebody that said that. So Matthew 7, 16 through 23, some scary words. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 16, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are some of the scariest words in the Bible. And Jesus is saying that unless you have fruit, demonstrating that you truly have believed in him, even if you've done all these religious things, notice what Jesus said in verse 23. I never knew you. Meaning what? Were they ever saved? They were never saved in the first place. So there is, and can we think of an example of a person that would be like that, that knew Jesus and claimed to follow Jesus and was there almost to the very end with Jesus? Judas. Judas was a false convert. He may have given lip service that he believed in Jesus, but by his fruit, he proved that he wasn't. And Jesus, on the final day, will say to Judas, I never knew you. 
Okay, let's go to Matthew 13. I'm not, we're not going to read all of this because I think you know the story, but it's the parable of the soils. Okay, so Jesus tells this parable of the sower, and there's four types of soils, right? There's the first soil that the birds come and eat. There's the second soil where it fell on the rocky ground. There's a third soil that fell among the thorns. And there's a fourth soil that actually went into the ground and produced fruit. And Jesus goes on to explain that. So let's, let's pick up in verse 18. Matthew 13, verse 18. Jesus is going to explain the parable. Okay. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke that word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Four types of soils, right? I would argue that the last soil, the fourth soil, was a true Christian. What was the, what was the similarity between all the soils? All four of them heard. What was the difference between the last one? They heard it, they understood it, there was root, and they bore fruit. Now, the one that we may often get confused with is the second one. The one that was sown among the rocky ground. Because what what does it look like? They receive it with joy, and they spring up, and they get excited. And that's where it gets tricky sometimes, because we may see people that get excited about Jesus, They may have walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or got baptized and got excited. But what happens? It doesn't take root. It says there's no root in them. And when tribulation comes and when persecution comes on account of the word, then they fall away. So Jesus here in Matthew is telling us there's such a thing as false faith. There is such a thing as believing in vain. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, you guys didn't believe in vain. You have to receive the gospel, you have to be saved by the gospel, you have to hold fast to the gospel, and you've got to be rooted and take your stand in the gospel. Now, there's some other passages of Scripture that teach this false faith. Jesus also said in John 8, 31-32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's one of the true evidences that you're not a disciple? You're not abiding in the Word. It doesn't mean that you don't, like, you're perfect and you don't ever disobey, but the totality of your life, you love Jesus' Word and you want it to abide in your heart. This is a scary one, James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe the Trinity. Demons have good theology. The devil's been reading the Bible for years. The the devil knows his Bible. But does he believe? Believe, believe? Demons believe. What does it say there? Even the demons believe and shudder. But are the demons going to heaven? Do the demons have saving faith? So there's such a type of faith that's not true faith. It's a false faith. 
You can call it a head knowledge. You can call it a profession without a possession of faith, however you want to call it. The Bible is very clear. And then we see an illustration of this in 1 John. 1 John 2, 19, John gives an illustration here of what had happened in, in the church. They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. Why? For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So there was a group of people in that church that left, apostatized, fell away because they weren't truly Christians. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul's very, very clear here. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. So the gospel comes by how? Preaching. Now, does preaching necessarily mean me standing up on a Sunday morning giving a sermon? Preaching the gospel can be that, but any of us in this room can preach the gospel. It may be sharing the gospel with somebody over coffee. It may be sharing it with a family member. It may be talking to your child. It may be whatever it is. But anytime that you give verbal declaration of the gospel, you're preaching the gospel. Which brings us to a great question. What's the gospel? We talk a lot about the gospel here at our church. And I don't want to assume that you know what the gospel is. So Paul's going to define the word gospel for us, and he's going to tell us exactly what it is. The gospel isn't just everything. The gospel is very specific. So let's look at what Paul says about the gospel. First of all, it's not something Paul made up. What does he say? I received this. I delivered it to you. I preached it to you. Verse 3, I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received. He received this. Paul didn't just say, hey, I'm going to invent this. I'm going to make this up. This is a cool story. This is something that Jesus revealed to him on the road to Damascus that is truth. Okay, so it's not just a made-up story. Secondly, the word gospel means what? Good news. Euangelion, good news. Okay, thirdly, what does Paul say here? The gospel is of first importance. Verse 3, I would deliver to you as a first importance what I also received. And he's going to talk about the gospel. It's the first importance. Okay, fourthly, here's the content of the gospel. It includes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What does he say there? For I delivered to you as a first importance. So what's the most important thing that Paul delivered? He's going to tell us. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So that it covers the what? The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what's the the fifth thing about it? It's in accordance with the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Now, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, and then he appeared to his disciples later on in Luke chapter 24, These are some of the last words that Luke records for us that Jesus told his disciples to do. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to preach? Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is that? According to the scriptures. And at that time, it was the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written. That's just the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's just kind of a catchphrase of all the Old New Testament together. 
that the entire New Testament speaks of Jesus, according to the Scriptures. That, and then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And what did he say to them that the Scriptures are going to talk about? It is written, the Christ should suffer. Is that the death of Christ? Yes. And on the third day, what? Rise from the dead. So there's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached or should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what's the very last thing Jesus tells us? This is just Luke's version of the Great Commission. Disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to go preach or proclaim the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus according to the Scriptures and tell people to repent and believe so their sins can be forgiven. That's the gospel. I mean, we know this. So here's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is a message of the good news of the literal and historical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that must be preached, received, and held fast to as of first importance. Now, the resurrection is what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. And what does Paul begin to say about the resurrection? Christianity is a public historical religion. It's not off in a corner somewhere. It's not a secret thing. Jesus taught publicly. Jesus healed publicly. Jesus was crucified publicly. You can go to the tomb publicly. He rose publicly. He appeared to people publicly. It was not a secret thing. And he goes on to say who all he appeared to. So let's look. Verse 5, he appeared to Peter. We've got accounts in the Bible of that, don't we? Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at one time. Most, Some of them are still alive, but some of them have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, then finally he appeared to Paul. So you have over 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. So what's the greatest apologetic for Christianity? The resurrection. Sometimes you can get in arguments with people about creationism, about you know, the existence of God, the authority of the Bible, and those are all good things to talk about. But the one thing you can tell people is, here, here, here's the deal. We serve a Savior who's risen again. There's an empty tomb. It's historically attested to, both in the Bible and outside the Bible. Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish historian, secular, non-Christian, even recorded that Jesus rose from the dead, literally. So it's a historical fact. So what I want to do here is I want us to go on a journey in the Bible and show you all the places where Jesus showed up post-resurrection. So I don't know if these are on your sheet. Are they? Um, do you have, no, do you have like Matthew 28, 9, Mark 16? She didn't put those on your sheet. Okay, I've got them on my sheet, so you're just gonna, I'm just going to have to yell them out to you. Let's go to Matthew 28, 9. So we're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay? Post-resurrection. We're gearing up for Easter, guys. I thought we can go a little bit deeper tonight. Um, Easter Sunday is going to be more of an evangelistic message of hope. Um, for, for a lot of people in our church coming, you know, be, being, being a part of things. But tonight we'll go a little bit deeper. Matthew 28, 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and looked and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Okay. There's a post-resurrection appearance where he appears to the disciples. Go to Mark 16. Mark 16. 
9, Mark 16, 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So that's another record. Mark just says he's appeared to all these people. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to two on the road. Okay, let's go to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're just going the order of the Gospels here. Luke twenty four fifteen on the road to Emmaus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So he literally walked with them on the road to Emmaus. This is right after he got out of the tomb. He walked to Jerusalem, probably a seven-mile walk from the tomb to where they were to Emmaus. Okay, 31 through 39. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And, and they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Paul says he appeared to Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And then he shows up to them. Okay, let's go to John. John chapter 20. John's account of after the resurrection. Verses 14. This is when he appears to Mary Magdalene. So John 20, 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir... If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and then... And that he had said these things to her. And then if you keep on going, he shows up to the disciples, and he goes to Thomas... What does he say there in verse 26? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John 21, 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to Thomas. He appeared to the disciples, all these people. And then he appeared to James. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. He appeared to James. Now, who was James? Jesus' brother or his half-brother because... They didn't share the same dad because the Holy Spirit, yeah. So his half-brother. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote the book of James. But back in John 7, 5, it says what? For not even his brothers believed in him. So while Jesus was doing ministry, James didn't believe in him until when? After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to James, James became a believer. 
Okay? And then he appeared to his apostles over how many days before he ascended? A 40-day period. And then Acts 1.3 says this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, right before the ascension. Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there is indisputable proof historically that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And it wasn't just like a secret thing out here where he showed up to two people. It was for 40 days. It was on multiple occasions. It was to 500 people one time. It was to Peter. It was to Mary Magdalene. It was to James. It was to the apostles. It was to Thomas. It wasn't a secret thing. You had to have been, to not believe the resurrection is kind of a crazy thing. And there was an article in the newspaper today that said, you can take it or leave it. Whether you believe the resurrection or not, it's really up to you. No, you can't take it or leave it. It's a historical, literal fact of history that happened. Okay? And then who did he last appear to? Paul. Paul says the last person he appeared to was me. And I'm kind of a weird one because I wasn't one of the original 12. I wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus when he was alive, but he showed up in power on the road to Damascus and changed my life. Because what was my relationship to Christians before this? I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was one untimely born. And what does Paul say? I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I really, I'm I'm unworthy. I I don't even know why I'm an apostle. I was a persecutor. Listen to what 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, Paul, Paul gives a little testimony here. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen. And he says, of whom I'm the worst. I'm the chief. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost, my favorite part of this passage of Scripture, Jesus might display his what? Perfect patience. So Jesus showed perfect patience to Paul, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor. Why? As an example to us, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 11, in 1 Corinthians, he says what? Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Whether I preach to you, whether the apostles have preached to you, whether anybody preaches to you, the gospel has gone forth in power after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So what I want us to do is to have a fun little trip through the book of Acts and just ask the question, what is the focus of the book of Acts? There are a lot of sermons in Acts. There are sermons, there are speeches, there are evangelistic encounters in the book of Acts, and it would behoove us to find out what do they talk about. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He opened their mind to understand the scriptures that the Christ must suffer and then rise from the dead and that forgiveness of sins and repentance should be proclaimed. What does Paul say here? 
It's of first importance, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if the gospel's of first importance, if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance, you'd think we'd see it in the book of Acts. And boy, do we. So let's just look through Acts. It was kind of fun going through this. I just kind of took the book of Acts and, and I went chapter by chapter to see what we could see. Here's the first Christian sermon at Pentecost where Peter stands up after they've been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He preaches this powerful sermon. Let's pick up in chapter 22 of Acts. You have this on your sheet, right? Okay. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus right there? Yes. Go down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The invitation did not come from dimming the lights and playing just as I am 15 times. The invitation came from the people. They said, What must we do? So when Christ is lifted up in power and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is preached and repentance is preached, what did he say? Peter said, what must I do? What is the first thing he says? Repent and believe. That's the pattern of Acts. Preach, preach, come out of your mouth, the good news message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and call people to repent and believe. It's that simple. And we see it all through Acts. Let's keep going. Peter's second sermon in Solomon's portico, Acts 3, 13 through 15. What does he say here? Now, we're picking up parts of these sermons, but I just want to highlight what he's talking about. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we're witnesses. Do you see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ right there according to the scriptures? Okay, you see it modeled. All right, what about... Uh, Peter's sermon before the council in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you. Well, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ there? Yes, and the exclusivity of Christ, that there's no other name. Okay, let's just keep going. I may be beating a drum here, but I want you to see it, or beating a dead horse. Paul's testimony, or the apostles' testimony in Jerusalem. Let's look at the end of this chapter. 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What were they giving testimony to? The resurrection. 
Okay. Peter's sermon after being arrested and freed. Acts 5.27. What does he say in Acts 5.27? Let's look. Acts 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit of God, whom he's given to those who obey him. See the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus there? I mean, almost every chapter, what are they talking about? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, what about Stephen? Stephen's sermon, a long sermon, the longest speech in Acts. But there's a part there in, in verses, chapter 7, verses 51 through 53. At the end of his sermon, what does he say? He gets towards the end, right before they stone him. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There's the, not necessarily the resurrection of Jesus there, but the death, the murder of Christ. What happened when the church was scattered due to persecution? When persecution broke out, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What did they do? Preach the word about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, what about Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch? Acts eight thirty five. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. What did Paul say the good news was? Of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. Okay, what about, what does Paul do when he's first converted? Okay, we're moving to Paul now. In Acts chapter 9, verses 20, what does Paul do after he's first converted? And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And then verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Do you see a pattern in Acts? Hopefully you see it. Okay, what, about, what does Peter do when he witnesses to Cornelius' family? In Acts chapter 10, 36-43, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are eyewitnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us, to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. What's the first thing Peter preaches? The conversion of the Gentile people. Okay, what about Paul and Barnabas when they're preaching in Antioch of Pisidia? Acts 13, 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are ready every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found him in, 
And they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And now we are witnesses to the people. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. What about Paul and Silas in Thessalonica? Acts 17, 1 through 3. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Okay. Explaining what? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The good news of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. Okay. What about Paul in Athens when he goes to Mars Hill? Acts 17, 30-34. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And to this he has given assurance of all by what? Raising him from the dead. Okay. What about Paul's farewell speech to the elders? In Ephesians 20. 17 through 21, Paul was in Ephesus, the longest of any of his ministries, and he gathers the elders of the church there. And what does he tell him he did for those three years he was in Ephesus? Acts 20, 17 through 21, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what did Paul do? He spent time preaching repentance and faith in Jesus. What about when Paul's imprisoned in Rome? I mean, Paul's defense before King Agrippa, Acts 26, 22 through 23. Towards the end of the book, he's got these three trials where he goes before these leaders. Acts 26, 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He gets before leaders. What does he preach? Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And finally, the very end of the book, he's in prison in Rome. He's got to Rome. He he survived the shipwreck. What are the very last words of Acts? Acts 28, 30 through 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So do we see a pattern in Acts? I mean, I, th- I think I went through almost every sermon or every witnessing encounter. Do we see a pattern of what the disciples did, what Peter did, what Paul does, what Philip does? So what's the pattern? All the scriptures, both of Old and New Testaments, teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in those sermons, they would go back and appeal to the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written. Jesus historically and literally died, was buried, and rose from the grave. Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses with his resurrection body for a period of 40 days. Peter, the apostles, the early church, 
held the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as of first importance as we can see it in their recorded sermons. Paul's entire ministry was focused on preaching the gospel. So, I don't think I, can, I, don't think I need to convince you. What emphasis do you think we should put on the gospel? <laughs> I mean, Paul says it's of first importance. Jesus, his last word said, it's the most important. What do we see in Acts? Almost every chapter, they're preaching it. So what happens when a church gets away from the gospel as of first importance? My wife says they're not a church. <laughs> but do we sometimes assume that people know the gospel? We're all Christians here. We all know the gospel. So we really shouldn't talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's get on to deeper things, like the end times, which, which at times are good to talk about. Do Christians need to hear the gospel just as much as non-Christians? Why? We're, we're a room all full of Christians here tonight. Why do we as Christians need to hear the gospel? To encourage each other. To encourage us so, so, we, don't, forget, so we don't so we forget. So we pass it down a generation. D.A. Carson said, the first generation of a generation believes and holds fast to the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel, and by the third generation, you lose the gospel. So there's that tipping point between assuming it and believing it. Assuming the gospel just means we don't talk about it because we assume everybody knows it. So we don't talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because that's, 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 that's elementary stuff. That's kindergarten stuff. Yeah, of course we know that. Let's get on to the deeper things. Well, I don't know how deeper you can get because Jesus said it's the one thing that needs to be talked about. Paul says it's of first importance, and we did just did a, did a short, I mean, we did like a rapid survey through Acts, and every time they're opening their mouth, what are they telling people? According to the Scriptures, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, so repent and believe. To us as Christians, every time we hear that, it should encourage us. Number one, that we were saved. And number two, that people can get saved. And non-Christians need to hear it so they can get saved. So as long as I'm your pastor, we're never going to stop talking about the gospel. It should permeate everything we do. And especially as we think about Easter, it's so important that we think about this as of first importance. Okay? Now, Paul is going to give here. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. I know we took a long detour there. But I wanted to show, it was kind of fun for me to go through. I said, you know what, I'm just go through Acts and see, see what they're preaching. I mean, I preached through Acts a few years ago, and so, you know, we went verse by verse. But sometimes it's good to just take a snapshot back and say, okay, let's look at every recorded sermon or every recorded evangelistic encounter, and what was the content of what they said? Well, we just saw it. I mean, there was other things they said there, but the heart of what they were saying was, according to the Scriptures, here's the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, so repent and believe. But what Paul's going to do here is say, the, the resurrection is crucially important. In verses 12 through 19, he's going to give seven theological, re, seven theological consequences. If there's no resurrection, these seven things can happen. He's kind of playing like this hypothetical. If, hypothetic, if, the, if the resurrection didn't happen, these seven things are true, which we know aren't. But he's saying these could be if the resur resurrection wasn't true. So let's read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And not only that, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we who are of all people are most to be pitied. Seven things. Here's the first thing. Number one, if there's no resurrection, Paul is saying, ultimately, Christ himself would not be risen. Now let me give you three historical objections. This was in my newspaper article a couple weeks ago, or I think it was last week. There's three major objections to the resurrection that people have had over the years. They don't buy it. They, they try to get around and say, well, it wasn't really a resurrection. The first one's called the falsehood theory. Okay? The disciples snuck past the Roman guards. The Roman guards. The disciples snuck past the Roman guards. They stole Jesus' body. They went and buried Jesus' body. And they went around spreading a lie, telling everybody that he had risen. Now, not only would the Roman soldiers have lost their job or gotten severely reprimanded or killed, but if you're a disciple, why would you die for a lie? Do you know how the disciples died? Let me tell you how the disciples died. You can, I mean, just historical books. You can go to Fox's Book of Martyrs, or you can... I, I have some historical books on the history of Christianity in my office. Fox's Book of Martyrs will give you some of that stuff. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Philip was scourged, beaten, and crucified. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was, who wrote the book of James, was beaten, stoned, and bludgeoned to death with a bat. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified. Mark was dragged to death. Jude was crucified. Thomas was killed by being speared to death. And Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Would you go through that for a lie? So that's totally bunk. Jesus appeared to how many? I could see if, I could see if you know, he just pulled Peter aside and said, Hey, Peter, it's just you and me in a corner over here. But he appeared over 40 days to more than 500 witnesses. If you're a disciple, number one, why would you die for a lie and be martyred? And number two, those Roman soldiers are not going to let you get in there and steal the body. So that's falsehood. The second one's the swoon theory, okay? Jesus didn't literally, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just fainted. Spear in his side didn't kill him. The cat of nine tails didn't rip his flesh. The torture of crucifixion didn't kill him. He really kind of just fainted. And when they put him in the tomb without food and water... He had enough strength to wake up after three days and roll that big stone away. He could physically overcome the guards and he could walk on Pierce's feet to Jerusalem because really he didn't die, he just fainted. That's harder to believe than a resurrection, isn't it? Jesus was not the only one crucified on a cross during those times. Thousands of criminals were crucified. So everybody knew what crucifixion was. You were dead. Okay, so that's bunk. The last theory that people come up with is called the vision theory. The vision theory. The disciples were so excited thinking about 
Jesus' words that he was going to return, that they really hallucinated, and they had visions that they had thought they'd seen Jesus, and then they circulated the story to get people to believe it. So 500 people had a vision of an imaginary Jesus walking around and eating imaginary fish and getting on an imaginary boat. and So those are totally false. But there's some people out there that don't want to admit that the resurrection is true. And Paul's first thing here, first theological consequence, there's no resurrection, then Jesus Christ himself didn't rise from the grave. Okay, the second one, he says, basically preaching would be, meaning, preaching would be meaningless. Verse 14, Christ had not been raised, our preaching's in vain. All preachers might as well just you know, stay home, watch football, not come to church on Sunday morning. Our preaching's meaningless. We don't, we don't have a message. Number three, he says your faith in Christ would be worthless. Your faith is in vain. If there's no resurrection, then what are you believing? Your faith is worthless. There's nothing to believe in. And number four, Well, where's number four? Oh, those who witnessed or preached about the resurrection would be liars. He says in verse 15, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead aren't raised. Paul's saying, okay, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're just lying about it. And Peter and Mary and all these people, we're just all liars who saw it and preached about it. And notice what else he says in verse, in verse 17. You'd still be dead in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Romans 4, 24-25 It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was risen from the grave so that we could be justified. Our sins could be taken away from us. Another thing that he says here, people in the past who were believers and died, they'd be in hell right now. Look what he says in verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Perished there means eternal perished. So if there's no resurrection, those that lived before, they're just in hell. So our preaching doesn't mean anything. Our faith doesn't mean anything. We're liars. Believers are in hell. You're still dead in your sins. And then the last thing he says is really, if this isn't true, we're pretty much the most pitiable people on earth because we're walking around believing something that has no meaning. So Paul's saying, if there's no resurrection, these things are true, which we know aren't. But he's making a case here saying, it is gloriously true. And there are amazing implications that flow from the resurrection. So let's talk about the glory of the resurrection. Verses 20 through 34. That's probably as far as we're going to get tonight. And that's as far as the, I've done in my notes, but this may take a while. Um, so 20 through 34. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You know, it's like the way Paul says that. It's a fact, Jack. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, he's speaking of Adam here, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In Romans chapter 5, he compares Adam to Jesus, and he's doing that here, the first Adam to the second Adam. Um, but each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule of every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? We're going to talk about that controversial verse. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, what Paul is going to say here is that Jesus did, in fact, rise again. He's going to say Paul or Adam, who sinned in the garden, was what we call our federal head. He was the representative of the human race. And so when he sinned, what did he bring into the world? Sin and guilt and death. So all of us are born under the curse of Adam. All of us are born in Adam. All of us are born sinners. But Jesus, the second Adam, the true Adam, came to wipe away the curse of the first Adam by dying and rising again. And so he talks about three levels of resurrection here. Do you know there's three levels of resurrection? Or three, three spiritual levels? of three, three ways you can look at resurrection. On the first level, we have the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as a historical reality. We've got the literal resurrection. That's the first thing. That, that's, that's, the, that's the foundation of all of them. Okay? That's the first type of resurrection. The second level, what does the Bible says happens to us when we become a Christian? We have a spiritual resurrection of sinners who are dead in their sins and we've been regenerated to new life. Doesn't Paul say we experience a resurrection? Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You were dead in your sins. You've been made alive in Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been... Paul gives this imagery that spiritually we've experienced a resurrection. We've died to our old self, and spiritually all Christians right now are spiritually resurrected. But there's a third level. What's that? The future. There's a, there's a third and future level of resurrection, the final resurrection on the final day when we will literally be resurrected with our glorified bodies. So your spiritual resurrection as a Christian and your future resurrection with your glorified body all flow as a result of Jesus' resurrection. He's the first fruits. That's why it says he's the first fruits. He was the first to be resurrected, meaning all who are in him, all who are with him, we will be the harvest at the end of the age when we are resurrected. Yes, at the yeah. At the however you want to look at that. Hebrews two fourteen says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What does it say there Jesus did in his resurrection and will do? 
At the final resurrection, when we're resurrected from the dead, what does verse 24 say? Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, and he puts all things subject to him under his feet. So there's going to come a day when Christ is going to right all the wrongs. He's going to come back in majesty. He's going to rule and he's going to reign and he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet and then the end will come. So turn to Revelation with me for just a moment. Um, I don't want to get into a millennial discussion because that could take forever. Uh-huh. Regardless of how you view that, we know there's a resurrection and there's a judgment. The, the timing of all that is an intermule debate for another time. I just don't want to get us off track from what we're... So look at Revelation eleven fifteen. This is the, the foundation birth for, foundational verse for Handel's Messiah that we sing at Christmas time. And I think it's, in a direct, it's a direct correlation to what Paul's saying. What did Paul say? When the end comes... He is going to put everything under his feet. He's going to be over all powers, all rules, all authority. He is going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to be over all the kingdoms of the earth. What does Revelation eleven fifteen say? Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. I mean, that, that's right there. He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world shall what? Become the kingdoms of our God and King. Now, it doesn't mean that God's not ruling right now. But it does mean that at the end of the age, Satan will be destroyed. Why can Satan be destroyed? Because of the resurrection. How can death be destroyed? Because of the resurrection. What's going to happen at the end of the age? We're going to experience a resurrection, and Jesus is going to come and rule and reign and make all things right as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I was going to take you to Revelation 14, but I don't think I'm going to take you there because it's the most graphic picture of judgment in the Bible of what happens to the lost who aren't in Christ. So we'll leave that for another day, but if you really want to get sober-minded and really think about the reality of hell and the reality of judgment, read Revelation 14. Let me just give you a preview. Look at verse 9. Yeah, Revelation 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand. Okay, code word there. If you're not a Christian, okay, Christians don't take the mark of the beast. However you view that, if you're not a Christian, here's what awaits you. Verse 10. This should make you weep. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. <coughs> so Jesus will come back and trample his enemies. And Revelation tells us it's not a pretty thing. But for those of us who are in Christ, the first fruits of His resurrection means that we will be raised to new life and we will live forever with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's some incentives that flow from the resurrection. So verses 29 through 34 give us three incentives that flow from the resurrection. So we're going to deal with this very difficult scripture. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 
the first incentive is an incentive for salvation. One of the, the, the resurrection should lead you to want to get saved or lead a lost person to salvation. When you truly talk about, believe, embrace, understand the resurrection. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in 1 Corinthians, maybe in the New Testament. It's led to weird things that Mormons teach. It's led to weird things that Catholics teach. It's weird stuff. So let me just read verse 29. And let me explain what I think it does not mean and what I think it means, okay? Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Mormons believe that they may have had an ancestor who was not a Mormon. And they died and did not get to go to the celestial heaven. So what you can do here on earth is you can go to a Mormon temple or you can go to a Mormon church and you yourself can get baptized on behalf of one of your dead relatives to ensure that they get to go. So you're being baptized by, you're baptizing by proxy, if you will, for somebody that's already dead. That's how the Mormons take this verse. Catholics have a similar thing. You can go to a priest and you can pay what's called, um, oh, what's the word? I just, I just lost. Um, no, um, indulgences. You can pay an indulgence. Back in the old days, I don't think they do that much now. Yeah, you can go pay money to a priest to, to spring a person out of purgatory. And so, you know, you're not getting baptized on behalf of them. So there's this whole idea that some people have taken this to mean, okay, there's dead people and they're going to hell or they're in purgatory or they're wherever. I'm whom alive. I want to make sure they don't. So I'm going to go get baptized on their behalf so that they get out of there. What's the major problem with that? Here's the major problem. Do we find anywhere in the Bible that baptism while you're alive saves you? Baptism, why? So, based upon Scripture, this is what it cannot mean. Okay? It cannot mean that a dead person can somehow be saved in hell by the living person being baptized in their place by proxy. Does the Catholic Church doesn't still do that? What you said? Indulgences? Yeah, they still do that a little bit. It was more big in the it was more big in the Protestant Reformation. That's that's how they funded the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still yeah they still yeah yeah. You can go. To, to make sure that your dead relative. Right, but you were still doing something by proxy for somebody that was dead. Yeah, we received cards saying they mm-hmm. prayed so much for the high priest to prayer for, for that loved one to get out of to get out of purgatory. purgatory. Yeah. So let's talk about baptism for a moment. The Bible nowhere teaches we're saved by baptism. Now, baptism is important; it's an outward sign, right? But we're not saved by baptism. What are we saved by? Grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So why in the world would we think that we can be saved by someone else's baptism which doesn't save us in the first place? So we can't be talking about getting baptized on behalf of somebody who's dead because even for us that are alive, that's never been salvific. So what does it mean? (laughs) What? 
Salvific? What does it mean? <laughs> now you've heard it. It's, not, it's, it's an adjective described by salvation. I know you did. Okay. Let's just talk. Yeah. No, I didn't make it up. Here's some important, here's some important theology. Okay. I'm just going to tell you theologically how you approach scriptures like this that are difficult. First of all, we cannot build an entire theology or practice around an obscure verse that stands alone with no other references throughout, throughout the entirety of Scripture. This stands alone. It's one verse. If there were multiple verses in other books of the Bible that supported this or gave more fleshing out to this or gave more commentary, then you could build a theology. So, for example, can we build a theology about the Trinity? Yes. Can we build a theology about salvation? By grace. Can we build a theology that you, can't, you shouldn't be sexually immoral? There's a lot of things you can build a theology about because it's all throughout the Bible. This is an obscure verse that stands alone, so we don't want to build a theology or a practice, meaning we don't want to do what the Mormons did and say, okay, we find a verse here, so we're going to go start a practice of baptizing on behalf of dead people. So you don't, you don't make a practice over an obscure verse that's hard to understand. Secondly, we really can't be dogmatic about what it means because nobody really knows what it means. You look at a commentary and there's all different, there's all different ways to look at it. So you can't be dogmatic saying, this is what it means. And thirdly, at the end of the day, we may never know what it means. But take a guess. So here's my guess. And I'm indebted to, um, to John MacArthur on this in his commentary. Here's the best interpretation, I think, of what he's saying. Paul's saying. We know, we know, uh, let's just read it. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Baptism is not what saves you. But what does baptism do? It's an outward sign demonstrating that you have received Christ for salvation. In other words, is there such a thing as a believer who's not been baptized? Now, maybe you're getting baptized or you're scheduling a baptism, but baptism is that marker that says, okay, I'm a Christian. So can we say... Like, a synonym for a Christian is a baptized believer. Can we say that? A Christian is a baptized believer. Okay? So in the early church, and even today, the outward mark of baptism or of being a Christian is baptism. It's a public testimony. So when Paul speaks of those being baptized, he could just be generally speaking of Christians. Okay? So Christians. Now, the dead, you're not being baptized on behalf of the dead. What it is, what I think he's saying here is that the dead are those Christians who are now dead, but whose lives left a great testimony to the power of Jesus and the gospel. So here's what I think the bottom line is, what Paul means. We can't be dogmatic. This is our best guess. What Paul may mean here is that people were being saved, i.e. being baptized in outward sign, because of the example and powerful testimony of faithful believers who have died and left a faithful legacy. Sometimes people come to faith because of the faithful testimony of others, especially faithful Christians who've died. So, so let me kind of flesh this out. You have a relative or a friend that you see as a very strong Christian, and they die, and you go to their funeral. And great things are said about them. The gospel is presented. And you look at the life that they lived. That could be an incentive for you to say, you know what? 
I want to become a Christian because that person left such a powerful impact on my life. And you don't become a Christian until after they're dead. Does that make sense? So you're not being baptized on behalf of the person that's already dead. You are becoming a Christian and making a public commitment because the legacy of what the dead person left, they still speak even though they're in the tomb in the sense that their legacy, their faith, their, their, their faithfulness to Christ still rings true and you looked at that, but now they're dead. Does that make sense? So that may be what Paul is saying here. Have I ever said no to someone that wanted to be baptized? I've said no to, um, I've, yes? Our daughter. Well, your daughter, yeah, I was about to say, you, normally children that come to me, they're like five years old. Like just two Sundays ago, I had somebody come up after the service that wanted to talk to me about baptism, and his mom brought him up, and he was eight. And I said, why do you want to be baptized? Because I want to be baptized. Can you tell me about sin? And I talked to him about sin, and I said, do you think you're a sinner? And he's like, no. I said, really? You don't think you're a sinner? No. Well, what did you... So I explained to him, sin, repentance. He had no clue. And his mom was thankful because she's like, he needed to hear it from you because he's pushing me on it. So what I encourage kids is, what I told him, I said, I'll pray with you that God will show you what it means to be baptized. And so I want you to keep asking questions and keep talking to your mom and keep writing your Bible and keep coming to church and keep praying to Jesus and keep, keep loving Jesus. And as you get older, God will show you what it means to be baptized. So is it okay if we wait? So I've had said no, mainly to children. Um, I can't think of any adult that I've said no to. Maybe after explaining it, um, I usually don't baptize a person unless they've given a credible profession of faith that they... And at the end of the day, we really don't know. I mean, there's people I baptize here to Manuel. I baptize them. I've never seen them again. But I can't be in control of that. The only thing I have to go by is their public profession of faith at the time. And they're following... Because I don't want to be the baptism police and try to... You can't get baptized because you... I mean, I mean, we need to be careful that people go through a consultation and we sit down and talk with them. But all I've got to go by is your public profession and it'll be proved out. So have false converts been baptized? Absolutely. Does that answer your question, Gary? Okay. The second thing that the resurrection does, so the resurrection, Paul's saying here is that there's these believers that were so in love with the gospel, and they talked about the gospel, and they talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and even after they died, people are still coming to faith because they were talking about the gospel. Um, that's a powerful legacy. Now, the second incentive is service. What does Paul say he did? <laughs> Verses 30 through 32. Why am I in danger every hour? <laughs> I love that. Why am I? If you go back and read 2 Corinthians, you find out he got beaten, he got whipped, he got shipwrecked, he, he, he was you know, in prison, stoned, left for dead. Why am I in danger every hour? It's not like every few months, it's like every hour. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast of Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul's saying here is, why in the world would Christians serve Jesus and suffer hardship and endure all the things that we go through if there were no resurrection? Why would you do it? And Paul mentions these wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, he wasn't talking about fighting lions and tigers and bears on my... 
if you remember in Ephesus, the silversmiths got mad because people were becoming Christians and not buying their idols. So they caused a riot and they dragged Paul into the public square and he almost got killed. And he was there for three years. And so Paul dealt with false teachers. And Paul's saying, why would I go through being beaten? Think about all those disciples that got martyred. Why would you go through all that if the resurrection wasn't true? We might as well just, you know, we might as well just eat and drink and sit back and relax because we're just going to die tomorrow. Paul's saying, I would not devote my life to Christ if I didn't believe there was a resurrection. That there was going to be a day where I'm going to be raised from the dead myself and see Christ face to face. Why would I go through all this? So the resurrection is a motive. Basically, Paul's saying, why would he risk putting his life on the line for the gospel if Jesus hadn't risen? And there was no guarantee that he would experience a resurrection on the final day. So for us, the resurrection is our motivation to serve God faithfully, even when it's difficult, because we know he will raise us up on the last day. That's what we get to look forward to. Okay, and here's the last one. It's an incentive for sanctification. Notice what he says. It's it's interesting how he just pulls sanctification in here, how you live as a Christian. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That sounds like it's out of the blue. Talking about resurrection, talking about resurrection. He's like, don't hang around people that are going to mess you up. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So looking forward to the resurrection should motivate us as Christians to live holy and upright lives. What does Paul say in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14? Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does this grace of God do? It trains us to say no. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to do what? Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And while we're living godly lives in this present age, what are we doing? We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul saying, as we're waiting for Christ to come back, as we're waiting for that final day before the resurrection of the dead, how are we to live? Upright, controlled, godly lives. The, the resurrection is motivation for us to live holy. And Paul says here, Bad company ruins good morals. It's interesting that word company. Oh, she didn't put that on there, did she? The word company is an interesting word in the Greek language. It has a double meaning. It can mean people you associate with, or it can mean a lecture or a sermon. That puts it into perspective, doesn't it? So not only is it bad morals but it's bad teaching. And what can it do? It corrupts you. So whether you're listening to something that's off or you're hanging around with someone that's off, Paul says don't do it. Bad company corrupts good morals. So be careful who you hang out with and be careful what you listen to. Whether it's immorality or heresy, it's going to ruin your witness and walk with Christ. So Paul says wake up, stop sinning, live a holy life because of the resurrection. Now, have you ever thought about that before? The resurrection is a motivation for you not to sin. If Jesus rose from the dead, and we are spiritually risen from the dead, and one day we too will rise from the dead, then don't sin. That's basically what Paul's saying. So let's recap what we've seen so far tonight. 
We must believe wholeheartedly in Jesus and the gospel so that your faith is not in vain, that you don't have a vain faith, but you have a true, authentic faith. The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. The resurrection is a historical reality with over 500 witnesses. It's a fact. If there is no resurrection, then our faith is useless. We're still in our sin. We're the liars. We're the most pitiable people on earth. Everyone is born under the curse of sin because of Adam, but we can be freed from this sin through the resurrection of Christ who destroyed the power of sin and Satan. On the final day, Christ will raise us up from the dead and rule and reign forever in power. The glorious truth of the resurrection should lead us to share the gospel, endure suffering and serving Jesus, and to live holy lives as we wait for His coming. That's Paul's points here. And that's just half of the chapter. It's a long chapter. He's going to still, what he's going to do, and we'll look at this next week, is talk about what the resurrection looks like. So like when we're resurrected from the dead, like whether you call it the rapture, the resurrection, the twinkling of an eye, he's going to talk about what it looks like, what we experience in that moment. That's how he's going to, that's, so, that he's, so he's kind of logically going, the gospel is the most important. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection. The resurrection is a fact. If the resurrection wasn't true, all these things, you know, were pitiful. pitiful. And then here's really what the resurrection does. It, it, it motivates us to share Christ. It motivates us to serve Christ. And it motivates us to live for Christ, holy lives. Okay? Any questions or observations from our study tonight? I'm coming over here. Proven or there's proof. What huh. was the person's name? Oh, Josephus. Is that J? Yeah, it's Joseph with an us at the end. Josephus. Yeah, Josephus has written Antiquities. And um, actually, if you give me just a minute, I can find the exact quote. Um, any, well, I'm going to. I have it in a, I have it somewhere here. Yeah, it's Josephus in the Antiquities. This is really small. I can barely see it on the. Uh, no, it's um. It's a fact, Jack. It's small. Okay, here we go. Uh, Josephus. Okay. Um, okay, here we go. Yeah, here we go. Here's what he said. Josephus. I'm going to blow this up a little bit. Yeah, Josephus. At Southern Seminary, the big quad is called the Josephus Bowl. I don't know why it's called. Okay, so here's Josephus, a secular non-believing Jewish historian, wrote this. This is from his Antiquities. Quote, On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. So a Jewish historian said he, on the third day he rose again. So he had nothing to gain by that. He, didn't have to, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't have to prove Christianity. He wasn't like an apostle. He, he was a non-believing Jewish historian that reported historically. It would be like a newspaper reporter reporting what literally happened in history that wasn't a Christian. They're just reporting the facts. So he reported that as a fact. 
that Jesus rose from the grave. So it's supported outside even the Bible. I mean, you, you, can, you can say that about Josephus, but even if you didn't have Josephus, we've got the Bible. And, we're, and, we're, and regardless of what, and people seem to think, well, that's the Bible. You, you guys are always trusting the Bible. Well, since when does not the Bible trustworthy as a history book? To give, I mean, when you think about the documents we have of the Bible and how many different centuries it was written over by different authors and the consistent message, why wouldn't God's Word be the most historically reliable? But people say it's circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to support your belief. Well, I can buy that, but the Bible is a historical book. Um, yes, Cindy. Well, and even with like all the, the theories you were sharing, um, the swoon theory and the, and the, um, no, not the, swoon one. the false division or the, the false... Division and the, and the, the first and third yeah. goes entirely against exactly... One thing the Bible does is it tells psychologically what people were like and it doesn't pull punches. Yeah. It doesn't make anyone look good. Yeah. And so Especially you, have, Peter. you have the disciples running in terror. They can't even show up and stand through the entire crucifixion. They're hiding out, waiting right. to be murdered and scared to death. And then all of a sudden they're preaching yeah. <laughs> boldly. Yeah. And, and they wouldn't have done that. They would not have snuck through and tried to steal a body and bury it and be able to do that. They, mm-hmm. Their psychology wasn't there yeah. to do that. And oh yeah, they've been killed. Yeah, let's let's talk about the Trinity here for a moment. Um, let me just see how much time we've got. Um, three minutes. God the Father sent Jesus. Jesus came in the flesh and lived and died and rose again. But we would not understand the resurrection. We would not be able to preach the resurrection. We would not be able to experience the spiritual resurrection unless we had the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Because between Jesus going back up and those sermons and acts, who had to come? The Holy Spirit. Wait for power to clothe you from on high. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me and you'll be my witnesses. So the only way they could testify to the resurrection even though it was a historical reality, the only way we can do it is in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's the one who opens eyes, opens hearts, brings people to the knowledge and conviction of the truth. So even though the, we, we want to stand wholeheartedly on the historical reality of the resurrection, but just the historical reality alone is not going to make somebody a Christian. You may be able to convince them historically, but convincing someone historically and the Holy Spirit regenerating a dead sinner are two different things. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. So yes, we testify to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact, but we trust the Holy Spirit to come in with that message and bring about the resurrection power. What does it say in Ephesians? Let's we'll turn real quick. One last place to look. Ephesians says this, and this may be a good place to end tonight. Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 17. 
Verse 16. Ephesians 1.16. And this is what we'll close with this tonight. So that'd be a good place to close. Ephesians 1.16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Open the eyes of my heart. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us as Christians to live and to work in us and also to be powerful for evangelism, to bring people to Christ. Resurrection power. So everything's about the resurrection. And this Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So be there or be square. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've got to spend in your word tonight. Just, just to spend time meditating upon the resurrection and all the implications that flow from that and all the just the facts that we've seen and the sermons and acts and all of the ways that your apostles and your leaders and your, your, your faithful servants just testify to that. May we, this coming Resurrection Sunday, be so thankful for the resurrection. May we proclaim it with boldness. May we live in the glory of it. And Jesus, thank you for raising us spiritually from the dead. And we look forward to that day where you will physically raise us from the dead to give us our new bodies to be forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth. And for this we praise your name. Amen.